0: Welcome to Cinema Joes, the podcast where three average Joes discuss the significant topics in movie culture. My name is Justin, and I am joined here by Alex. Hey, Alex. Hey, Justin. Hey, dude. And uh, we're also joined here by Noah.
1: Hello.
0: Hey. Oh, the gang's all here. For uh, people who are new to this podcast, this is the podcast where we typically talk about a recent movie release and then a broader topic related to said movie release. It can be direct, it can be oblique. We like to keep things uh, a little bit uh, flexible. This week, we're going to be talking about Bad Times at the El Royale, which is the newest film from Drew Goddard, a filmmaker that I think we were all very interested to see what he was going to do next. And we'll also be talking about, uh, are we losing our uh, best film creators to television? which I think has become a very relevant question in the past few years as um, this idea of like peak TV has come about and actually different filmmakers have expressed their, and and TV people have expressed their opinions on this. So we'll be getting into that a little bit later in the episode. But before we do, let's start with uh, the things we've been watching recently. And actually, I'm going to break from precedent a little bit and uh, I'm going to go first for this segment the one thing that i saw recently which i'm gonna be honest was kind of a bummer which is the latest film from david wayne which is called a futile and stupid gesture i was interested in this movie when i first like heard about it because i was very interested in seeing a narrative feature about uh national lampoon which of course started as a magazine kind of just became this comedy empire and was really interested to see that story told and I just was not into this movie at all, guys. My problem with it is I felt like it wanted to take the traditional biopic and turn it into something irreverent, on the level of something like National Lampoon, and I just feel like it's not consistent enough with that vision, and it was very frustrating because there are times when this plays out like, kind of like like a light biopic, almost in the vein of something like Big Eyes, but then. You know, also has these like little moments where it kind of breaks the fourth wall. So, for example, there's a narrator in this who's played by Martin Mull, who, of course, uh, most people recognize as Gene Parmesan from of Development. And he plays he or claims to play the older version of Doug Kenny, uh, who this film centers upon. Um, for those who don't know, Doug Kenny was one of the founders of National Lampoon, along with Henry Beard, and worked on movies like Animal House and Caddyshack. And was a prolific comedy writer in his own right of you know of, of many different formats radio uh, literature. Board of the Rings I think is still one of my favorite parody novels ever. So it has uh, Martin Mull playing an older version of Doug Kenny, which is if you know Douglas Kenny, you know that he passed away when he was in his early thirties, and you're like, and so most of the movie I'm like what are they doing with this? Because this is very strange to me. And at the end, they kind of reveal it's like, oh, this is like who Doug Kenny would have been if he had not died in what either was a a freak accident or a suicide. It's still not entirely clear what happened uh, in real life. But it's just a very strange choice, in my opinion, because if you know what happened to Doug Kenny, you're just sitting there most of the time. It's not a surprise when you find out that he died in early age, if you already know, and you're just like, who is this guy supposed to be? I feel like the film tries things like that, but it's just not consistent enough with them. And in the end, to me, ends up feeling like a bunch of actors I really like just kind of playing dress up, playing these, like, you know, iconic figures. And I just wondered whether it was worth it. So that was a bummer. I did really briefly want to mention something else that I started watching, which is finally getting back into Better Call Saul. Um, just <laughs> just watch the first episode of the third season because I haven't caught up with that yet um, and that's been a nice that was a nice little treat because Super Gesture kind of bummed me out so it was nice to have a little bit of a reprieve uh, and see that you could have very serious filmmaking take place on this show on AMC which of course you know by now is kind of standard but it's still really nice to see that they're able to, to keep that up so yeah I recommend Better Call Saul. Don't <laughs> recommend Futile super Gesture, if that hasn't been clear already.
1: And I'll second your recommendation of Better Call Saul in saying that Season 4, which is the season that just concluded a week or two ago, is mm-hmm. even better, in my opinion, than Season 3 and the first truly great season, in my estimation, of the show. It's the first one that I think can really stand shoulder to shoulder with a season of Breaking Bad. So, And it is a Breaking Bad spinoff, if people are unaware of that. So, yeah, just you have a lot of good TV in your future, Justin. If you just started season three, <laughs> that's
0: I expect nothing less from Gilligan and Company. So, all right. Well, Noah, why don't you tell us what you've been watching?
2: So, there have actually been a number of really interesting German movies that have come out this fall, uh, which I'm always excited when German cinema finally uh, puts out a big production because that doesn't happen too often. And just last week, I was finally able to see the new film "Never Look Away." By Florian Henkel von Donnersmark, the director of the much lauded, um, and rightfully so, The Lives of Others, which won the 2007 Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film, and this new film is going to be submitted for that prize again this year, and in between, he didn't make another movie, uh, except for The Tourist, but the less said about that, the better. And... So he
0: didn't make a movie, you're... yeah, you're right.
2: yeah. <laughs> He did not make an actual film. <laughs> uh, and the Never Look Away is, uh, it's, a, it's loosely based on the life and work of an actual German artist, but heavily fictionalized. And it basically uses the artist of this life as a prism through which to look at uh, the late World War II period and then the early post-war experience in Germany, specifically in East Germany. Uh, this is an artist who comes of age towards the end of World War II, uh, and who has an aunt who is diagnosed with schizophrenia, and eventually falls prey to the part of the Holocaust that focused on eliminating people with mental and physical disabilities. And then it looks at how, after the war, he's a young man in what is now turning into communist East Germany under a repressive government, and how he first starts to develop his art underneath uh, the East German government. But then eventually decides with um, after he's met and married uh, the love of his life, they decide to flee uh, to West Germany, and there he continues to try and develop his his talent, develop his sight, and find his uh, find his own vision for what sort of artwork he wants to create. So it's a very it, it the the whole film struck me as one of those massive, expansive historical biopic slash dramas that used to actually be pretty or, or I feel used to be more typical than they are today. Like it, it feels like the it, it feels like an older type of movie in that sense that it has this very big vision. It's over three hours. It covers over 30 years of German history, again, like filtered through the life of this this one man and how it affects him and, and how it affects those around him, and combines looking at the changing world with it, like the changing Germany that he grew up in and then eventually developed into, combining that with himself trying to find um, a unique way to to bring his artwork to life and to to present the world in a way that allows him to to finally have a career and to be able to use his artwork to provide for himself and, and his wife. And it's a really, it's a really really good movie. I, I very much enjoyed it. Um, I mean, part partly because I do come with a solid background in German history, so I, I was quicker to get a lot of what I was seeing and the importance of this figure, this moment, or this reference in the dialogue. But I think it's a movie that everyone uh, who likes that sort of historical drama will really like seeing. And it also features Sebastian Koch, as the father of the artist's future wife Uh, and we also know from the beginning he was one of the doctors that the nazis put in charge of the extermination programs for mentally uh, challenged people like his aunt so that's a connection that is never like the audience knows right away who this guy is and what what role he played in um, the death of someone that the artist was close to as a child but they never actually know it themselves. And that adds this, like, this, this very threatening air to their interactions, and I found it really effective. Also, Sebastian Koch is one of the, the greatest living German actors. He was one of the lead performers in The Lives of Others, so I think most people who see this movie would probably know him from that film. Uh, and it's nice to see him return to working with the same director, and it's nice to see this director return to the form that produced The Lives of Others, which is rightfully considered one of the, the best German movies made in the past several decades. So yeah, Never Look Away is definitely, it's going to be an Oscar consideration. Uh, I think that alone may very well guarantee that it will get a wider release at some point within the US uh, because The Lives of Others is one of those few German movies that more people in the US have actually seen at one point or another. Uh, so it's a movie I definitely recommend checking out. If and when it it makes the rounds,
0: yeah, I had heard about this. I wasn't sure what kind of um, release it was going to get, like in other in other places. I mean, it is. It looks like it is the German, like you said, the German submission for foreign language film this right, year.
2: It will be. It will be. So I think if it, I think if it officially <laughs> yeah. does get the nomination, that will probably guarantee it getting uh, at least a limited theatrical release. Because again, the lives of others, like a lot of people, actually do know that movie. Uh, within American audiences,
1: beyond just yeah, that was a very good. That was a very big movie the year it came out. Yeah. yeah,
2: so I think that alone, and if it actually does get, I think that alone might guarantee this movie actually getting nominated for best foreign language film. And I think, I think those two things combined would probably guarantee some sort of release.
0: Yeah, I remember people going to see *Lives of Others* who don't typically see foreign language films. Like it had, mm-hmm. it had, it had an impact
2: in other places, which I thought was really, uh, was really cool. Yeah. And it's nice that The Tourist will now no longer be the most recent film on the filmography <laughs> of Florian Fondelman. I think you Mark.
1: mean Golden Globe nominee The Tourist. Best comedy or musical nominee The Tourist. Yeah.
2: The Martian was best
1: musical or comedy at the Golden Globes. Like, ah, oh, Golden Globes it won. no sense. <laughs> that was good news for the director of our featured f- review this week, Drew Goddard. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. Well, (laughs) uh, I'm looking forward to that film as well. Thank you, Noah, for that. Uh, Let's go to you, Alex. What have you been watching lately?
1: Okay, well, I've been watching something kind of serious. Uh, It's a movie that has been getting a slow release uh, over the past few weeks. It's just been slowly expanding into more and more theaters. Uh, It's called The Hate You Give. It's based off of a book by Angie Thomas uh, from a few years back. It's a it's a YA book but it covers some really serious topics namely police violence and brutality. It is about a African-American girl who goes to an all-white prep school but is from kind of the urban community in her town and she kind of she socializes in both worlds and towards the beginning of the film her her childhood friend and former uh crush, I guess you could say, is shot by a police officer in front of her during a routine traffic stop, Uh, a traffic stop that was perceived in the film as totally unnecessary in the first place. And this story is about how this girl who had been really trying to go under the radar in both worlds because she didn't really feel very much at home in either space, whether it's her... The urban community where her family is from, who often will kind of tease her about the types of clothes she wears or the way that she talks um, or her f- or her quote unquote friends at the white school. Or the community at the all-white prep school, where it's she feels like she needs to minimize her roots and her her blackness and just go as unnoticed as possible so she can kind of fit in. And it's about taking a, a character like that and putting them in this extraordinary situation where they feel compelled to stand up for the injustice that has befallen uh their very close friend and potential love interest who was needlessly and mercilessly gunned down by a police officer in front of her. Um and it's a story about how the community reacts to that, both communities that she's in, and um the ways in which she has to persevere through all of these really difficult situations. And I will say that I really like that we have had this kind of trend recently of kind of YA-themed films that are tackling more serious issues about a more diverse community. I feel like we've seen a ton of YA films about sad girls and vampires or werewolves or magicians of some sort. (laughs) Um, We had like a whole decade of the post-Harry Potter Twilight sagas, and now we're finally getting into this new era where they're really tackling real stuff that real teenagers are having to confront now, whether it's things that they're being confronted in the news or things that they're being confronted inside their own communities or inside their own homes. You know, I'm thinking of something like love Simon and all to all the boys I love before. And all like, there's several of these types of movies, even a movie like eighth grade, like a lot, which tackles a lot about just like how difficult it is to go through life, as a teenage girl, when nothing extraordinarily bad happens to you. Uh, But this is a movie where something extraordinarily bad does happen, but it's something that unfortunately happens all too commonly in our current society.
2: Alex, are you suggesting that Harry Potter is not about real stuff? Because me not getting my letter when I turned 11 was a very real pain (laughs) that I'm
1: still not over. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's kind of about how you how Europe should be like very on guard against the encroaching, uh, appeal of fascism. And it turns out that's a story that's pretty relevant to our times. So maybe I'm doing a disservice to Harry Potter, <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> but what's nice about this movie, the hate you give is that it doesn't really couch it in metaphor. It doesn't really couch it in, in symbolism. It's, it's dealing with the really raw gritty experience and, you know, it's, It's not quite like a film like Pariah from about a decade ago, um, which tackles, uh, the life of a, a young woman as she comes into her own as a as a lesbian in an urban environment from African American family who may or may not be accepting of that sort of lifestyle. Um that had a much more I don't want to say gritty because I feel like that's a overused term, but it had a had a much more lived in experience. This has that kind of major studio YA release sheen to it in some aspects, especially towards the end when a lot of things kind of get Wrapped up in a neat bow, that was kind of disappointing. But what I really admired is that, given that that's the form that this movie is trafficking in, they really do go there with a lot of things and make it and make it as real as you can. and And they and they plunge a lot of dark areas. Uh, they don't always take the easy way out or uh, the most pat sort of route towards a resolution, even if by the end of the film uh, there is a little bit of that to it. And I mean, when I look at the the film, the screenwriter of this is someone, she's obviously adapting the book by Angie Thomas, but she has written in the past movies like Under the Tuscan Sun and The Kid. And I I really felt that influence towards the end of the film, most of all. Um, It's also, I should say, directed by the director of Soul Food. His name is George Tillman Jr. He's someone that I haven't really seen that much before, but it had a more Ambitious visual style than I expected they they do a little bit of a color grading where the scenes in the white school have this kind of stark kind of uh sterile blue tint to them and uh and the scenes in star, who's the main character in star's home life uh, is has a much more warm type of uh, aesthetic to it. I thought that was an interesting subtle. Um, visual choice for a film like this, which tends to not have that many, uh, aesthetic flourishes like that. Um, but th- the strength of this film really comes in the acting. Amalda Stomberg is the star. Uh, you might know them best from being Rue in the Hunger Games. Um, but they are all grown up now and, and really giving an incredible performance in in the lead role as star. Their mother is played by Regina Hall, who has been in a million things, mostly small roles. But she got a nice big showcase last year in Girls Trip and I think really anchored that film. Had to do a lot of the kind of heavy lifting with exposition as like the lead character. And I think she really she really did the best she could with the, that material. Even though the, the other characters got to do more of the showy, funny stuff. Sure. Um but she's excellent here as as Amalda Stomberg's mother, who is really just trying to protect her daughter through all of this. And uh Russell Hornsby is is Amalda Stomberg's father in the film. Uh he's not an actor that I'm very familiar with, but he's just absolutely incredible in this. I mean, if there was any justice in the world, he would be getting a best supporting actor nomination um at the end of the year uh because he's just he's just incredible as this like very he's very caring very loving but very real portrait of a father who who wants what's best for their daughter but who also wants uh justice for his community so yeah it's a really it's a strong movie it's it's not without its uh you know genre uh kind of cliches um but it really elevates the genre, I think, in a lot of ways. And I think it's a really important film for a lot of young people, especially. I I know I've heard from a lot of uh, critics of color who have said that the film really resonates with their experiences. Um, and I think it's also something that is very beneficial for people who are not of color who maybe don't understand this situation as well as they should by now and that this could be a really good this seems like something that is servicing both communities in an important way at this moment in time
0: yeah and i I like what you said about uh the diversity of of uh ya adaptations that we're getting i mean i think it i think it speaks to the fact that there are so many great ya novels out there that are about all different kinds of things not just about you know post-apocalyptic landscapes (laughs) um (laughs) But yeah, but it does seem like at the same time, I wonder if maybe things like the Hunger Games and Harry Potter kind of paved the way for these kinds of things to happen. I mean, obviously, there are other factors as well.
1: Um, well, I think it but... absolutely did, because I think that it really it showed that it's a genre of literature that should be taken seriously, even yeah. if some of it's even if some of the its descendants kind of trivialized the genre in certain people's eyes. I think that the strength of those original films and the uh, those original books and the way that they had crossover appeal with adults, um, and the way that a lot of uh, kids who grew up on those works now are adults, uh, really. Mm-hmm brought a lot of new life into the genre in a way that has has made it a viable uh, platform in and of itself and a great source for uh, movies dealing with current day issues. Yeah, and I think it really helps great. because a lot of, it seems like it's difficult for Just, and we might end up talking about this in our featured review also, but it's just difficult for studios to back original material about real people these days. There has, there always has to be a genre push or like there has to be some sort of like superhero origin story or based on a true life story. And the fact that these YA novels have these built in fan bases helps get these stories adapted into film in a way where I feel like if a screenwriter just wanted to tell a similar story and it wasn't pegged to a real life event or to a YA adaptation, uh, it probably would have a much harder time getting in theaters in the first place. So I think we, we owe a lot to uh, the writers of this genre for for making cinema more relevant than it could be at this moment
2: That's an interesting argument I think I like that
1: Thanks
0: <laughs> Yeah I'm glad you spotlighted that one That's certainly one I was I was I've been interested in checking out I think I'll try to make the time for get into a bad times of the el royale i guess i honestly don't know where to start with this one i <laughs> guess we could talk about like our general impressions but i just want to say i came out of this and i was like i remember saying to my to my friend who i saw with like yeah there's a lot of movie there <laughs> <laughs> It's a lot more movie than I'm used to getting. <laughs> it's no, there's
2: there's a lot in it. A lot of there's a lot with the characters. They do they do much more of the backstories than of everyone than I was expecting. I was not expecting yeah. the movie to devote as much time as it did to giving even the freaking bellhop or the, the or I guess the lone employee of this entire hotel. Um, mm-hmm. Like even he gets like a lat a last minute backstory that's like chucked into the third act and like like wow
0: yeah it's just watching this I, it, there was something about the pacing that just not in a negative way but made me think like am i am like, you're not used to seeing movies that take like big like studio movies that take this much time nowadays uh or at least that's been my experience mm. i mean
1: well for me it was the best quentin tarantino movie that i've seen <laughs> in like a decade probably <laughs> Uh, (laughs) I, it's like, it's definitely, it's a movie that I just, I kept thinking of the hateful eight while watching it and thinking how much better this is than that.
2: You know, that's not a bad comparison.
1: And like, instead of trying to solve racism and recriminations of the civil war through a bloody hanging slash lynching, um, between a black and white character, um, we actually have like interesting nuanced characters, uh, who are touching on socio-political, um, elements that were relevant in this time period that it was set 1968 and that ripples into today. Um, and it actually spent the time to focus on, to build really interesting characters and to give Mm -hmm. them room to breathe and give them multi-dimensionality, um, instead of just be kind of, uh excessive and extreme and shocking talking points for whatever the auteur wanted to say in the moment. Like it didn't <laughs> feel so yeah. it felt like real people interacting with each other in an interesting way instead of um what a lot of later Quentin Tarantino has been, which is kind of like him putting like his toys in a box and shaking them up and then <sighs> resulting in a in a liquidation of some sort. <laughs>
0: Well, and and I think a lot of the, like, there's a lot of specificity in the dialogue really helps, but it also feels much more concise. Mm. Um, Yes. It feels like he can add texture just by, like, a certain phrase that that people use. Yeah. um, As opposed to, like, a long-winded speech, um, which I think really helps. Yeah, I I agree. I I was really taken by the aesthetic of this. Um, Love the way this movie looks. I think the production design is just spectacular and it's spectacular in a way that's not always like just like, you know, showy if anything it's the opposite of that. It's like this aesthetic drabness mm-hmm. <laughs> that I think is really like impressive and I'm not used to seeing in in, in movies. I think Goddard gives us the time to really explore those spaces mm-hmm. um and and really feel them in a way that uh yeah, I just I think is really serving keeping with uh what he's trying to do in this movie, mm-hmm. which is really sort of immerse us in this place and uh I guess in a way kind of keep us in this purgatory situation. Mm. Um you know, I think there's a lot <clears throat> yes, at stake it's... in this movie and it's not just lives.
1: Yeah so i'm i so i'm kind of I'm kind of envious of uh film critic David Ehrlich uh for pointing out to me before I could realize it myself that uh the El Royale is one hundred percent purgatory um because it is a <laughs> place in between heaven and hell he- heaven being California and Hell being Nevada um mm-hmm. i thought that, <laughs> i i I did that occur to you guys at all? It didn't occur to me while watching it, but it it definitely makes sense after the fact
2: I had already seen an argument to that extent before. Like just a, a title uh, of a film review that I happened to cross. It might have been that same one before I even saw the movie, so the idea was already in my head. Uh but it absolutely okay. fits. uh especially with the just the reaction of the, the reaction of the bellhop right at the beginning of the film, like, father, what are you doing here? This is no place for a priest.
1: <laughs> yeah. That that bellhop, by the way, is played by uh Lewis Pullman, who is Bill Pullman's son, if you guys don't know. Yes. Found that out from Little Goldman. yeah um and it's pretty much like he doesn't have a ton of acting credits um he's he's been around on like some shorts and some like tv stuff but this is like his first real i mean he had it he had a supporting role in um lean on pete which was a a movie by andrew haig which came out earlier this year um that's a filmmaker i like a lot but i haven't seen that movie yet but he, this is, like, a very, very prominent showcase for him. And what's really interesting about him is that, i at least this is what I heard, that Drew Goddard wrote this role for Tom Holland, um, specifically, and then Tom Holland couldn't do it. And really? I knew that going in. I had heard that story before watching it. And I have to say, I i was a little distracted by it because I felt like every time, like, he looks so much like Tom Holland, and he's giving a very similar <laughs> Tom Holland-esque performance but what I like about the difference is that like there's just this kind of like like a slightly off kilter way about lewis pullman in this whole film like that he is he's doing that thing where it's like oh they're hiding some sort of secret but he's 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 embedding that into his performance in this really really interesting way um that makes him just feel like maybe 20 percent like 20 degrees off from the typical tom holland performance that we may have gotten in this role so i was a little distracted by that because like i i wonder what tom holland could have done with the role but i thought that lewis pullman was really really good in it and i liked him a lot do you think like
0: not knowing him as an actor like we kind of ha- now have this persona associated with tom holland do you think not knowing lewis pullman actually aided in the sort of enigma around his
1: character i think it definitely you know? doesn't hurt for yeah. it to be a fresh yeah. face yeah. i
2: think it helps the character it fits the character actually because it's all about like it's so much of the movie is about this slow burn mystery um but mm-hmm. also not like there is this this mystery that we get in pieces but not all of it but it's also not entirely about that like at the end of the day i almost thought when they start talking about management i was thought, okay is chris hemsworth character gonna end up being management but no (laughs) he's just some he's just some asshole who goes in there to do his thing we never find out who management is
1: it's god obviously yeah it's he's an unseen it's an unseen force yeah it's an unseen force that is managing that is policing uh people's morality um in a way and and using it to uh to create a lot of guilt and shame uh it feels like a direct Mm. commentary on religion and its role in society And and it's the and that's and it count and it's countered so well with this like with Chris Hemsworth kind of uh, a seductive devil-esque character who who represents this kind of like anarchic chaos in a way, and who maps pretty interestingly to our current political moment as well, which I thought was really, uh, I really appreciated that. That That's something that I really do like about this movie is that when you watch it at first, you're just thinking like, oh, it's just this like fun kind of like genre thing where it's like seven strangers are at a motel and like create and then everyone has a secret. And, you know, and it's totally that and it executes that, in my opinion, flawlessly. Um, but on top of that, just baseline genre. Uh, element you build really, like, compelling multi-dimensional characters, and then on top of that, you build interesting, uh, like, political, like, socio-political commentary that feels really relevant to today, and that helps tie us back to our past um, in 1968, which is when this uh, film mm-hmm. takes place, and so I just, yeah. I really, really like this movie. It's one of my favorite films of the year. I'm just going to say it now.
2: I had a moment watching the movie where I just thought to myself, like, I didn't, realize that i was actually missing seeing a a movie like this but apparently i was Mm -hmm. missing it and i'm now really happy that i'm watching it like i'm just i'm just happy to be here
1: and the (laughs) audience the audience
2: i was watching with was actually really into the movie as well like they were gasping at the right moments and laughing at others and like they clapped at the end of the movie so that made it fun too actually this is one of the top films i've seen this year that i would almost describe as a crowd pleaser Based on that, like it's it's a fun and interesting movie to experience.
0: I wonder because I know like my I wish I could say my audience had the same thing, but my my audience was a pretty small, um, which is not, you know, I I only use as an anecdote because I think it's reflective of the uh, kind of meager box office that it seems to be doing in the United States right now. Um, That just I don't know, there was just I feel like most of the audience was just not used to seeing something like this which is fair like I don't I don't mean that as a like an elitist statement or anything like that I just I could just sense that at certain moments that I think uh, the other people in my audience their energy was flagging a little bit especially toward the end um, the sort of protracted sequence when Chris Hemsworth and his torso appear (laughs) Um,
2: uh, there's literally nothing else on screen for the entire third uh, act
0: yeah I really I was really impressed by how unpredictable this movie was from moment to moment. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. I thought it did a really good job of setting up certain things and then kind of upending sure. them. But
2: when like when um, really shocking stuff does happen, it feels like it fits. It's not like it's not yeah, graphic, it feels or it's earned. not graphic or violent or bizarre just for the hell of it. Like just for the sake of throwing a curveball. There's always some reason or purpose behind it.
0: And it's usually brief and explosive, like, whenever violence yeah. happens. There's not... I mean, unless yeah. I'm forgetting something, it's not really protracted. There's no, like... I can't recall, like, a
1: torture sequence in this. Just, like, um, a lot no. of torture. Well, sure. no, I mean, there, well, yeah. there's the um, part where, like... You know, I mean, like, when Lewis Pullman's character, after he is... He he gets injured in a fashion that is kind of gr- grisly and then has sure. to deal with it for a while. Um, yeah, He doesn't like seem to be in movies. a particularly... Yes, and, uh, but I, I feel like the most torture is of that character, and it's of his just like morality. Like, yeah, it's like... <laughs> he's just in this existential torture throughout almost the entire film. That is really, right. really, it, it, it feels like an affectation. Like an affectation when you first start watching, and it just it sucks you in and and really, really. Becomes compelling by the end, um just like all of the characters. I feel like every single character I had a similar arc to, where I was like, "Oh, this is just kind of I get like this is a stock kind of character. I get what we're doing here. Like it's oh, it's a priest, but it's not really a priest, probably. And like and you know it's like and and like you just you have an idea of like what everybody who everyone is. And yeah. it's not that it's not that they're not those people, but they're a lot more than just those people. And they're just so charismatic and interesting as actors that they pull you in every time. Like obviously, Jeff Bridges is going to be great in a role like that, but I think that the biggest standout of the film is Cynthia Erivo, who's an yeah. actress that I haven't seen before. She's actually a a big Broadway star. Yeah, she earned a she earned she earned a Tony a couple of years ago mm-hmm. um, for the Color Purple um, opposite Jennifer Hudson. And she's like making her break into film right now with this, and then in in another month she's in uh, Steve McQueen's uh, "Widows" in yeah. a very prominent role as well. Um, and early screenings of that have said that she's amazing in that as well. And I just think she's a star.
2: That's as great a breakout as you can have.
1: Yeah, I know, and I think watch like just watching her, she's a star. Like she should, she's amazing. Like she comes in and like you're not sure who the main character is. It feels like it's this ensemble piece, but by mm-hmm. the end of it, like you're with yeah. her. She's your person in there. Like you're, she's the one that you care about the most. And she's the most interesting person out of this really interesting array of people. I think that she makes herself the most interesting by far. I mean, her standoff with Chris, Chris Hemsworth uh, towards the end of the film where she just completely calls him out on his BS is just yeah. amazing. No, that, it's great. Yeah.
2: that was one of, I think that was one of the coolest things I've seen in a movie this year like one of, <laughs> like easily one of the top 5 or 10 most badass like moments in any movie I've seen out of all the movies I've seen including like the action films that was just well, and it's really yeah. fantastic
0: and it's the way she does it right it's not by like like she doesn't like
2: she's not screaming uh,
0: yeah, she does it so calmly and rationally she's in a not way crying that's just like I'm done with you. Like yeah. it's so it's like resigned in a way, but like that makes it even more I would say, even more um uh brutal. Yeah in a way. Yeah just with yeah. that quietness. Um yeah, I agree with you. I think I think she's great and I, I feel like there's just never any question in this movie about like how talented she is. I mean like just with with her singing and anything else, it's you know, I, I knew going in just, again, from the Little Gold Men podcast, because they talked about her uh, on that, um, that she had this, like, huge musical theater background, um, and that it was all her own singing and all that. And it's just, like, this person is just, like, born... <laughs> She's just... She just seems, like, bored to do this.
2: And I love um, how the singing is utilized in the film. Like, a lot of uh, a lot of times the assumption is... Oh, uh, a a, um, a musical performer or a musician like Lady Gaga is going to be in a movie. Obviously, it's going to be a very musical movie where they're going to have a lot of numbers. It's not a musical like music is a big part of the movie, but it's not like. But whenever she sings, it ha- it serves a very certain purpose in the scene, uh, to, to set a tone or something. Like I think I love the editing and the sequence where she's singing to drown out the sound of Jeff Bridges' character. Mm-hmm digging down the floorboard yes. yes, and they don't they don't know it they know someone could be watching but they don't know that Dakota is actually watching and holding a shotgun at the same time yeah. uh, and it just cuts to her singing the floorboard her tapping her fingers to the time of the music.
1: But yeah, no, I agree with you, Noah. That sequence was one of my favorite of the film as well. Just like the way that she claps to ma- to mirror his his hammering of the floorboards and it just so and and it just speaks to how amazing she is as a singer that like they know that as long as she does this, she's so like she's so distracting and how great she is that your focus is going to be on her regardless yeah. of what else is going on if, in that room. If someone
2: <laughs> is watching, which they don't know, we know some right watching. right yeah
0: that's and I love yeah. that all those shots of the of the two-way mirror you can always you can almost always see the reflection of the person who's watching so yeah. in a way the voyeur is becoming watched by us which is really which is really cool and usually in a way that's like almost not quite like it's not clear it's not completely clear like it's not totally in focus but it's there it's like this like mm. almost like this ghost of the person who's watching it's really um really interesting effect
2: there's a confidence i think that's the word that that sticks out for me in everything from the use of music to the acting and the casting choices to the writing to the way it's filmed and stylistic choices like that there's a a complete sense of confidence throughout the film that yes we know what type of story we're telling we know what we're going to do to tell it and we know how to do that and make it work and to make you buy it
1: yeah and like I, like, I thought that Dakota Johnson was great in this. I thought that it's, yeah, I, agree. I didn't realize that there is a perfect way to use her in a movie yet, but this kind of solidified it for me. Like, this is what she does best. It, it echoed a lot of um, a bigger splash, her performance in that for me. <laughs> so I just want to keep seeing her in iterations of this of this type of character because it's just, she brings so much layers to what again could have been kind of a stock role. I also like her her sister who's played by Callie I who is not a performer who's who's really had a lot of work as well. It's this is an, this is probably her biggest project so far. She's great as this just like chilling kind of Uh, Mm -hmm. a cult member basically like she you really you really see the humanity underneath her and you see the way it's been corroded over time Mm -hmm. by just layers of abuse and 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 manipulation Uh, and that's hard to that's hard to pull off you know Uh, she could have just Mm -hmm. been like oh i'm the crazy one and and for me i feel like there was a lot more humanity to her uh than that and i really appreciated it
2: But it also, it gets to the point where, like, at the very beginning, the dynamic is clearly set up. Okay, the big sister tried to save the smaller sister, and she wants to, like, take her back and, like, recreate their dynamic as a family somehow. By the end of the movie, separate from what happens to the characters anyway, you can't help but feel like, okay, even if they had both gotten away from this scot-free, like... I don't think there'd be any going back for like there'd be no real return to like who she was before. Yeah, which makes the older sister's quest really tragic in that sense. We you cannot but feel like they were both kind of doomed no matter what. Like there was no safe, there's no salvation I, to be had there.
0: I think there's just to, to credit uh, Johnson's acting in this. I think there's a moment in that flashback we see when she sees the 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 fight between mm. her sister and the what does Chris Hemsworth uh, call it a,
2: a tumble tussle a tussle tussle. having a tussle today
0: which um that is that is not i would not use that word to describe the uh no get into but uh but i think it's a credit to her acting that i think there's a part of her that knows like that you even though she doesn't show a lot on her face you can still like sense in her mind she knows how far gone her sister is at that point and how difficult this is going to be to try to uh extract her Mm -hmm. from this situation
1: I I also just wanted to briefly talk about John Hamm for a second Mm -hmm. because when he came on and he was like southern fried Don Draper I was like (laughs) oh my god what is he doing like this this seems way too big for what the movie around him is and that's a bad accent what like he's from Missouri he should be able to do a better southern accent than that and then like when you realize like oh no this is an affectation that he's putting on he's a federal agent like I thought that was so smart and then the idea that like Mm -hmm. instead of going the obvious route where like he's an under he's he's like undercover so he's going to try to like be very inauspicious and uh like not be draw attention to himself it's that his choice is to play the most the biggest and most obnoxious person that no one wants to be around so <laughs> to ensure total privacy i thought that that was a really clever kind of twist on expectations mm-hmm. i think everything about this movie is a clever twist on expectations but in a way that doesn't feel contrived or cheap. Like we were saying earlier, it just, it really earns all of the twists that it makes. And, and it's, a rare movie that is ahead of the audience at every turn. Usually, movies like to think that they're ahead of the audience, but you can usually figure out what's happening. But this one, I was just genuinely surprised at all of the moments. I yeah. mean, when when Cynthia, when Cynthia Erivo's character turns to to Lewis Pullman after he says, I can't kill another person, I can't kill anyone else, and she goes, how many people have you killed? And he's like, 243. And then it just cuts. That's like one of the best moments of a movie I've seen this year (laughs) because you're just at that point you're like what movie am I watching anything could happen now like is he a crazy serial killer I don't know I would believe it (laughs) like it's so and then it's so and then the truth of that moment is immediately so sad and it just it's so great I I just I really like this movie
2: like especially after we found out so much about how twisted this place is and what it's there for and then he's like oh all this stuff this isn't even what I was really afraid of. Like this isn't even the stuff yeah. I want to confess. <laughs> I've seen this worse is the than stuff all I don't this. care about. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, who do we think was on the mystery tape? JFK.
1: Oh, it was JFK, okay. right? Is there any question?
2: I was just curious. I kind of like that it's
0: I like that they never say.
1: Yeah, I do no, too. Guess, I like that they didn't know. say.
0: Yeah. I kind of I figured I guess in the moment I figured I could be someone
1: like JFK.
0: I just didn't really. I was like, well, if they don't want to tell us, then this not must not be important. It's like it could have. Like, it
1: could have also been yeah, RFK, yes. technically. You know, because he would also have been dead by this point. That's true. Um, or Martin Luther King, True, yeah. could have been. Yeah,
2: that's. I think there are a lot. I think there are a couple. Pot. That's what I like, though. There are a couple of clearly obvious possibilities but it really could go either way. Like it's, it's noncommittal enough.
1: And because it's honestly, it's more symbolic of that type of person and that type of situation mm-hmm. than it is about any one specific person that they could right. have named. And so I think that the ambiguity yeah. rather than being vague for vague sake felt mm-hmm. like it was serving a thematic purpose.
0: Um. So we, we need to talk about Chris Hemsworth and that's, that's an obvious thing.
1: Yeah. I, so I'm not sure if he was doing a good American accent at all, um because I was too distracted by his body the whole time his <laughs> <hips>. <laughs> I, his at, a, at a certain point at a certain point, I started to become more aware of his performance, and I was appreciating it as very charismatic and interesting but uh, yeah, he's. Yeah. Oh, my God.
2: I want to know whose idea was, okay, we're going to take, like, one of the, by consensus, most attractive people and one of the most attractive and well-known movie celebrities today, and we're just going to stick a big old 70s mustache right on him, just unapologetically
1: right there.
0: (laughs) I mean, I did want to speak to that, though, because I do think that is part of the upending expectations here. Um, And maybe, I don't know, maybe this says more about me than it says about people in general who see this movie. But um, when I saw Chris Hemsworth on the poster for this movie, uh, bare-chested, I just automatically assumed, oh, he's got to be the hero of this. No, <laughs> That's I, obviously... I mean, he's... I mean, Chris Hemsworth <laughs> plus... Bare torso equals good. Like this is right. <laughs> this is indisputable. It, it equals the be. devil, Justin. <laughs> and that's what I think is so clever about. Like I, I love the fact that they use that in this movie. And I also love how him being bare chested is like. I think is is also like reflective of the sort of. I don't know if it's the arc of his character, it's more the perception of his character through this movie. <laughs> that when he appears, he's like this golden god. Um. and yeah. By the end, when you see like, like. That chest—I mean, you know—not to give too many spoilers—but that that chest is uh, gravely injured at one point, and it's very jarring when you see that because you just because Goddard is so good at at setting it up that like this guy just seems so invincible and invulnerable, and that's part of Hemsworth's performance as well. Um, yeah, but I just love I love how he uses that as a device and how this character is gradually dressed down through the course of this movie, and by the end, I think is like. Uh, Maybe not I wouldn't say ineffectual or ineffective or anything like that, but certainly um...
1: he's he's been exposed as a as a shallow and pathetic shell of what he was claiming to be by the end, which I think was great. I also I also want to say I think that it's great that this movie has now given us a second film where uh, Chris Hemsworth is just walking through a field of daisies for no reason. Um, this, the first of one was in the Avengers movie where he's just he's just there. He looks at his hammer and then he picks it up, but it takes up about like 20 minutes of, of uh, movie time. Um <laughs> so now we have two of those scenes i want more i want like a trilogy of films featuring chris hemsworth randomly walking through a field of daisies for no reason see
2: that's when sting was singing about the fields of gold he was thinking of chris hemsworth (laughs) we have all underestimated how far-sighted sting was
1: (laughs) anyway okay um i we should move on but before we do just like how do you uh like how i wanted to ask briefly like All three of us were really big fans of Cabin in the Woods. How would you quantify the evolution of Drew Goddard as a filmmaker from Cabin in the Woods to this? Oh, that's a good question. Man.
2: This film is definitely not nearly as bonkers as Cabin in the Woods was. Uh, For me, that's part of what made Cabin in the Woods slightly better, though. Like, I would not put this film over Cabin in the Woods if I were to do a ranking. Um it's certainly more polished
0: i think it's just to me it feels more assured in a way than than that film did while i would say like that film does like go to some wackier places especially because it's kind of it's attempting to expose i don't know if i would say horror movies as much as a particular kind of horror movie in a particular very you know specific genre Mm. um this i do think is playing on genre but at the same time it feels a little more anchored to a sociopolitical message, which feels like a very direct reaction to our current political climb. And I know I wonder if it's because uh this one is like all Goddard and Kevin the Woods was really technically a collaboration, even though Goddard and Goddard is like credited as the director, and I believe he did he did like not that he didn't direct the film or anything like that, but I also know Whedon was like very very involved creatively in that project whereas this one is very much goddard and i guess it just feels more assured it feels more um
1: yeah um, like for me i would for me the evolution is this it's that cabin in the woods had very strong observations of genre and bad times at the island El Royale has those observations of genre but it's also very well observed of its characters and of how people are and a little bit of uh of political socio commentary on top of that. So it's like it's the evolution of of being very good at observing the intricacies and uh and finer points of genre and genre cliché and genre convention at, and going from that to actually using those tools to observe people and have something to say about people mm. as a result whereas cabin of the woods has something interesting to say about genre this has something really interesting to say about people i think mm. and um and for me that's an elevation of of his skill
2: okay
0: and this is a guy who has worked with like he's worked on things like buffy and um, Angel and Lost, like he's he has worked, I guess, what I'm saying is he has done a similar thing before, at least as a writer more than a director. But this is really him, like, really guiding the ship in a way he hasn't before,
1: yeah. I mean, it's he has this really you know, he has it seems like he has this kind of fascination with, with Purgatory, uh, because you know, uh, between. Like that's, that's obviously a theme in, in Buffy and Angel and Lost and The Good Place, which he's an executive producer on. Um, it's like, it just, it keeps recurring over and over again in his work. Um, and so I think that it's no surprise that it's an influence here too. Um, but I just, I think that this is a really great, Uh, kind of merging of a lot of his influences and, you know, it's, it's definitely, it's not the most original piece of work because of course there are definitely a lot of uh, uh, cinematic influences right there on the screen that you could see, you know, I mean, this film couldn't exist without Quentin Tarantino and Quentin Tarantino couldn't exist without like a dozen other filmmakers first. So it's part of a tradition, I think, of, (laughs) of, of cinematic inspiration at this point. But that doesn't take away from how great it was and how fun it was and how much it made me care about its characters and made me think in a way that, you know, like I said, a Quentin Tarantino movie hasn't made me feel or think about in a long time, you know, probably since Jackie Brown.
2: on to our uh, third topic
0: yes let's do that I, yeah so this is about this is about movie creators and whether we think they're migrating to television or if we're like losing too many of those kinds of creators and we're not seeing that as much in current cinema
1: okay well i'll say this i this this idea has been kind of like rumori- ruminating around in my head for a while um and i thought mm-hmm. the a drew goddard film would be an interesting excuse to talk about it because you know drew goddard he has been doing some things in film, right? We talked about he got to make Cabin in the Woods and then he wrote, the screenplay, or he adapted the screenplay for *The Martian*, um, which got him an Academy Award nomination, we should say, mm-hmm. uh, which is great. Um, and then this is his follow-up cinematically. But in the meantime, he uh, spent a lot of time developing a show for for Netflix called *Daredevil*, mm-hmm. um, which he actually he developed the whole thing, and then had to leave early in its in its production of the first season um, because he got a job working for the Spider-Man cinematic universe over at Sony, which then never happened. Um, so we, we could also use him as an excuse to talk about whether we're losing our great film makers to franchise films. But I thought that the movie is to TV kind of thing was more interesting just because for me, like, so there always used to be this kind of an invisible wall between cinema and television and t- TV people would sometimes jump over to cinema, but it was usually considered kind of, you know, slumming it for a movie person to go down into TV. You know, they might occasionally do like a guest appearance on ER or Friends so that way they can get a guest Emmy nomination. But other than that, they're not really doing it. And certainly directors are not going into television very often. But nowadays, that's completely not the case with the infusion of of money from places like Netflix and HBO. And there's this kind of more prestige around a certain level of television that can be cinematic. And what we're seeing is all sorts of the best people out there uh, devoting years of their life to television. And and some people think that that's, that that's a problem because we're losing a lot of potential really great films. People that I'm thinking of are so... M. Night Shyamalan has a new uh TV show that's gonna be through Apple's streaming service that's gonna be coming out next year. Uh so does Oscar winning director Damien Chazelle. So does Oscar nominated uh filmmaker Barry Jenkins. Um <laughs> like uh the list goes on and on. I mean and somebody Spike that I Lee
2: also has, Spike Lee had a Netflix series recently. That's
1: Spike Lee example. has a Netflix yeah. TV show. Uh-huh. Um, uh, the there's of the also, Buster
2: Scruggs, the Coen brothers were supposed to be making uh, a show out of that until they decided to make, yeah, it. that
1: was supposed to be a show. And then it, and now then it's it got an changed anthology
0: film, right? It's
1: Something an anthology like film like, instead. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which is, you know, six of one half dozen of another, as far as I'm concerned, I don't, uh, I, th- <laughs> it's interesting, but you know, there's also Jean-Marc, Jean-Marc Vallée has basically given the last few years of his life to making television, uh, after having his films nominated for Oscars like Wild and, and Dallas Buyers Club, he jumped straight to the HBO uh, machine and and directed every episode of Big Little Lies and then directed every episode of Sharp Objects this year. Um, And now and now uh, this spring, Big Little Lies is coming back for season two and uh, Andrea Arnold is directing every episode of that, who's a who's a very talented up and coming filmmaker. Um, So I, I think that. It's kind of crazy for me to hear you, Noah, say you're not aware of anybody coming to mind because it feels like every single day well, I hear about a new project by a by a major person who's well, doing like TV now. I'm
2: not. I'm not. I'm not always up on the latest news, so I'm a bit of a dinosaur ah. when it comes to that <laughs>
1: stuff.
2: I'm like, is it good or not? If it's good, I'll see it.
1: But so basically, so that's the foundation for which I wanted to have this discussion. Like now that you know the facts, how do you guys feel about that? Are you okay that this many people are? experimenting with television instead of just making movies
2: i mean for me good storytelling is good story storytelling if it's a good show or a good mini series i'll watch it if it's a good movie i'll watch it i i very much feel that I- as a general rule i'm for whatever allows a- more people and a greater variety of people to tell a greater variety of stories and i think the market is such that at the moment Because franchises and superheroes are crowding everything out so much on the, like, in heavy air quotes, traditional movie scene. And, like, Amazon and Netflix are working as hard as they can to blur that traditional line.
1: And Apple, you should say.
2: That's true. And Apple. Uh, You know, given that the current market is more conducive towards those type of franchises, if more interesting stories are created by more creative storytelling people, whether or not they're directors or or actors or production designers or whatever going over to tv shows or to series then that's then that's what that's what the situation is and i mean no no change in the industry has ever been permanent so it's not like if a bunch of creative people go over to making series now that means we'll never have another great wave of original cinematic content hit the big screen ever again like no maybe it'll take a bit maybe this is a shift that'll change things for a few years but it's not like it's not like the situation is is as it is now is set in stone so th- that's just not not the sort of thing that I would see as a problem in any sense as long as the end result is either in movie form or in series form we're getting a really wide array of great stories being
1: told so Justin um you are our resident TV snob uh so what do you think <laughs> about that
0: ah <laughs> uh, definitely not um <laughs> but well the 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 first thing this question made me think of was people like david lynch who have spoken about this of course Um, and he's someone who's been very adamant that like he thinks that television is the new art house and i can't necessarily agree with that uh i i mean i don't know if this means like have we lost david lynch to television perhaps (laughs) maybe Um, but at the same time, like, you know, he, he talks about that and he talks about how like it allows him this like freedom that he hasn't had in other projects. And I guess I just think like David Lynch, like regardless of whether he's like, he is an established figure, like pretty well-regarded cinematic figure. It just strikes me as like someone like him is probably going to get something, um, especially when he worked on a show that was actually a phenomenon when it was on in the early nineties. He has a reputation, so he might be allowed a certain amount of freedom that other creators might not i don 't know if that 's something well, he 's taking into consideration
1: so I want so two points to to comment on that one, I think that we should not be like we need to mention the fact that David Lynch is kind of a pioneer in this. In this discussion in that he really was the first major filmmaker of his kind to experiment with television when he originated Twin Peaks in uh, the early 90s on ABC, network television of all things, and then tried to 10 years later do it again with Mulholland Drive, which was Mm -hmm. originally an ABC drama Project, uh, which then uh, ABC said we don't want this on our network, and <laughs> then he re and then he reconfigured, uh, reconfigured it uh, as a feature film. So I mean, the the directors who are making strides in in television right now really owe a lot to the precedent that David Lynch set all those years ago. But to your other point that but. he can experiment more in TV because yes. he's David Lynch. I mean, I don't know though. I think that <laughs> I think that there is just more room to experiment with TV because number one, it tends to not be as expensive as a film, especially when you factor in like distribution costs and things like that. Uh, and number two, whereas, whereas a film, like there are set slots in the schedule and there's, uh, and there's only so many films that any one distributor and studio can release at any given year. Uh, there seems to be an endless supply right now of outlets willing to spend a significant amount of money to get their name out there by backing projects like Netflix is releasing hundreds of television shows over the course of this one year, you know, like, uh, uh sh- an outlet like Apple is putting out tons of money on a lot of projects because they want to establish themselves as a source for entertainment in a way that they aren't currently. Uh, You know, we have places like Hulu and, and uh, there was just news that Vudu, which is Walmart's on demand video service is now going to be creating original content. Uh, and I forget the, I forget the person who they're paired with, but it's like a legit, it's, it's a legit project. So there's just like an endless supply of outlets right now, and they all want and need content. So because of that, you come at them with a the pitch and they're going to, they're going to be more likely to do it. Whereas a film studio is going to say, well, you know, we might be interested in doing this at some point, but you know, we can only put out 10 films this year. So uh, th- this isn't really a priority for us, or this doesn't really, the, you know, like there's, in, in TV nowadays if you get if you get rejected by 10 places there's literally 40 50 60 other places that you could go to with your idea and hopefully get it made so I, I, th- I think that that's not necessarily true
0: well and, and I guess also with I think a lot of these what's been really interesting about these streaming services is that in some ways I do feel like the lines have blurred a little bit as to what is TV and what is cinema. I get the sense we talk about things on Netflix even even if they don't get a theatrical release almost like a theatrical movie. Uh we don't treat them as like made for made for television movies, which I guess they kind of are, if they're not seeing a theatrical release, but we don't see them as made for T V the same way we would see it if like NBC were to make something like that. Well, they do get a theatrical
1: release, they just it's a very small theatrical release and it's concurrent with a Netflix release.
0: It depends on the movie, right? Like there are ones that don't.
1: Any of them that maybe like in awards consideration or any sure. of them from established no, yeah, filmmakers. Totally like that. a movie like To All the Boys I Loved Before, I think debuted on Netflix and wasn't available in a theater. But you know, yeah. Paul Greengrass's movie gets in. No, Bombax's movie gets a theatrical release. Like all of the sure. any any movie that is considered to have like a certain level of you know esteem. And even the ones that don't. I mean, some of them even some movies that don't get theatrical releases do end up getting released, uh, get shown at film festivals at least beforehand, you know, but But then again, nowadays there's a lot of TV that is getting debuted at film festivals as well. You know, like Mm -hmm. um, uh, Sam Eshmals, the creator of uh, Mr. Robot, his newest, uh, his new project with Amazon, which is very much a TV show uh, debuted at, um, debuted at the fall film festivals this year. Uh, And that's not, And that's becoming increasingly more common as more auteurs are getting to produce limited series like that. So I agree with you. Like there is like a blurring of the line for sure. Yeah. Is that a good thing though? Is that okay? Like, do you think that Hmm. that that cinema is being diminished by this blurring of the line?
2: No, I don't think so. I would
0: say I don't. I don't see it that way. Um, but I do think it's it is interesting in terms of I guess if we believe there are things that television can do. That movies can't, and there are things that movies can do that television can't um which is another reason I think why I tried to bring up David Lynch earlier is because he's talked about uh Twin Peaks the Return as an eighteen hour movie, which I find very interesting i haven't I have not seen this series yet to to say if that's that's fair, and there is a precedent of things that have been released on television that are then regarded later as. Um, film series, I think of, like, the Decalogue, the stuff... Kis- uh, yeah, Kisowski, that's a good example. Um, example, which I didn't even realize was on TV until much late, like, after I knew about... I just saw it as an anthology film. And then you actually, like, realize, oh, no, this was like, created specifically for television. I guess that's interesting in terms of the blurring of the lines when you have a creator like David Lynch, who has, like, for the most part, worked in movies. Like you said, he has obviously... He has worked in TV before uh, and is a pioneer in those uh, in that respect, Um, but also like claims to take this approach that he approaches it as this very long movie he's created. So I don't know if it I don't know if it diminishes it as much as it's just interesting to me to see that there does seem to be a little bit of a discrepancy
1: yeah i just i just want to say as someone who has watched all of twin peaks the returned it's ridiculous to call it an 18 hour movie every episode (laughs) uh, nearly every episode ends with a like a like a musical performance by a band like it's the end of charmed like it's very much (laughs) episodic it's a ridiculous talking point that a lot of filmmakers who go into television say in order to bring a certain level of prestige to their project because Hmm. in their minds they're still coming from tele- from a place where television is the lesser medium so if you call your television series actually a 18-hour movie well now it is more prestigious and more respectable artistically than calling it a television show um i think some te- i think some especially miniseries could be considered more of a extended film but most of the time they're still following episodic structures. Uh, and so it's usually just a weak talking point to refer to them mm-hmm. as uh, like 10-hour movies or 13-hour movies or 18-hour movies. It's a problem that like, especially if you follow... Uh, tv critics on twitter you'll see them complaining about constantly because nowadays even non filmmakers who are making their shows especially for streaming outlets and things like that like to throw that around as a way to elevate their thing so like stranger things likes to think of themselves as uh more of a 13-hour movie and it's like no you're a tv show like you know it's it's okay to be a tv show that's not bad own the fact that you're a tv show you know But yeah, so I don't know. I mean, I haven't really said what I think because I kind of, I hope it wasn't embedded in the question, but I I think that it's kind of, I think that for the most part, I like narrative experimentation. So I like the fact that certain, like certain stories get to be six hours, certain stories get to be 10 hours and certain stories get to be an hour and a half or two hours in a film. Um, I think that overall that's a good thing, but I am a little bit worried that when we look back 10, 15 years from now and we're like, oh... Who were the great like directors of our time? And we look at like what was getting nominated for Oscars or what was getting nominated for Critics Choice Awards and things like that. And these people who in our head were like, oh, these are the best people, aren't there? Because they were busy making TV, which hmm. is still an art form that doesn't prioritize directors, doesn't prioritize art- auteurs as much as cinema does. So like, a uh, uh, somebody like Andrew Arnold. Who is getting a really she's getting a significant platform by being able to direct Meryl Streep and Reese Witherspoon and Nicole Kidman in Big Little Eyes season two on HBO, a show a series that is was very popular in its first season that a lot of people are gonna be watching, probably way more people than have seen her earlier films. But The people who are watching it aren't going to say, oh, Andrea Arnold is doing a really good job as a director here, because that's not how most people watch TV. Now, there's a lot of people who don't watch movies like that either, but there are more people who watch movies like that than there are people who watch TV like that. And so I feel like that may or may not put Andrea Arnold at a disadvantage for her next project. Will this be a stepping stone? Will it not be a stepping stone? I'm not sure. Um it's an open question. So I think that is something that that is like some possible negative aspect to it. But overall I like narrative experimentation and it's usually easier and cheaper to watch things on television anyway. So, (laughs) and I probably watch more movies on my TV than I do in theaters at this point anyway. So it's really not that much of a distinction in my mind personally.
0: Well, and, and also like we, I think we still see directors who kind of, who are like sort of flitting between the two mediums which I find really interesting.
1: Right, that's what's becoming the trend. You know, like Barry Jenkins makes Moonlight, he gets all of this acclaim, then he signs on for I'm pretty sure an Amazon series, an adaptation of a no- of a novel about like a modern day underground railroad. Um and then he makes If Beale Street Could Talk and then I think his next project is going to be the um the show for amazon and it's and i'm sure he'll do a tv um, another film after that so it's like he's getting to do both things which i think is a good thing you know um overall but it means that we're going to go longer without a new barry jenkins film which you know i don't know it it, it all comes down to i think whether you're prioritizing cinema as a distinct entity from television i think you know
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well and, and and also like when you're like you yeah, have people like Steven Soderbergh who say they're done with movies and then they do the Nick and then now we've had two films since then from him. Right. <laughs> so like it's I don't know, it's it might be dependent on the circumstances at the time. I guess the other thing is that like kinda like you just mentioned before, that um doesn't mean we have more extended time between like film projects versus T V projects. And I think the reality is I just think I think people love movies as an art form. I think the people who make them love them for a reason. And I think there are going to be plenty of people who come up who it might be easier to like, okay, I need to establish myself. I need to make a movie as opposed to a television series right off the bat. Um, I think there's there's just going to be like, there's going to be so much talent and, and so many voices we haven't heard of. And frankly like obviously I love established filmmakers cuz I love seeing what they're going to do next because they've given me a reason to fall in love with them but I love seeing new filmmakers too. I love seeing like you were saying before Noah this I love seeing a diversity of of voices and of subjects that we can make these projects on whether it's movies or television.
1: You're here. Yeah, and I just before before we go I just wanted to say that I feel like this trend really started in earnest um about five or six years ago when true detective season one came right. out and that was heavily influenced by kari uh joji Fukunaga, and Ooh, uh he, episode, of course right? he directed every episode mm-hmm. um and that really did seem like it helped his career a lot that was a big springboard for him you know like he had made two films prior to that one was was well received his first film then the um uh, but it was a small film. And then, you know, he did that Gene Eyre adaptation that I I feel like kind of went nowhere. Um, and then he did this and all of a sudden he got attacked, like he became like a major filmmaker. So that helped him a lot. I, so that's an example of it helping him a lot. I think, um, he came back to TV this year, directing every episode of Maniac, uh, which was, uh, an Emma Stone, Jonah Hill miniseries on Netflix. And now he's going to direct the new James Bond movie. So, you know, he's kind of his career is an interesting kind of test case of where uh, a a potentially visionary filmmaker is going these days. Um, but in the meantime, True Detective is back this January with its third season. And it's being partially, at least, directed by Jeremy Sonier. So, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and he's a director that we really like. We're, we're going to be talking about him, uh, next week and his project. And, uh, yeah, so it's kind of, I just thought that's an interesting place to end the discussion, you know?
0: Well, that's good. It's always, it's always good to end with a little bit of hope. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, guys, let's, uh, we'll, we'll leave the conversation there for now. Uh, let's talk about where we can find everyone. And actually I'll start with me. Uh so you can find me at uh the Cinemaverick on Letterboxd. I also have a website called the Uh I know I've mentioned it before, but I really do think I'm going to have my twenty seventeen retrospective up very soon. Um, so look <laughs> just, forward to that.
1: Just before New Year's Eve twenty eighteen. Yes. You <laughs> can oh, just do that. Yes.
0: <laughs> it will definitely You say that like,
1: that. oh of course, but that's you know, we're two months away. <laughs>
0: I know, this is what I get for doing other things and working full-time. Uh, not enough time a day. How about you, Noah? Where can we find you?
2: <laughs> well, Enjoy in addition work. to my work in this podcast, my written film reviews and other commentaries are on my blog at francenoir.blogspot.com. I'm currently in the process of getting up reviews of a lot of the movies that I've seen this month. So 22 July, um, Never Look Away and A Star Is Born are all up. And I'm planning to get a review for Bad Times at the El Royale done hopefully this month. <laughs> but we'll see.
1: <laughs> cool. And you, Alex? Uh, you can find me over at Letterboxd, at Media Thinkings, and also on Twitter at Media Thinkings. And also, if you want to talk to me over on our show Twitter account, you can follow us at Cinema Joes, where you can get updates on our episodes, and you can talk to us about things that you want to see in the future. Also, if you don't already, if you could subscribe to our channel on Apple Podcasts and, you know, leave us a review. Those reviews and subscription numbers really help us get in front of more people and help us continue to do the show.
0: Very well said. All right. Thank you to all our listeners, both new and old. Uh, For the Cinema Goals, this is Justin signing off. um
2: no i'm just thinking okay (laughs) i broke justin